everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's epic novel, The Stand. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here to take this journey with me. Along with a reread and review of the novel, I will also be rewatching and reviewing the ABC miniseries that aired in 1994, starring Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald, among many, many others, as well as giving you news and updates regarding the upcoming limited series that will be airing on CBS All Access. There's also the possibility that I will be sneaking in a couple reviews here and there um, regarding King's other works because... Uh, We fans seem to be in the age of a King Renaissance, so to speak, which I find really thrilling. And, you know, even if some of the projects we've received thus far have been a little less than spectacular, uh, we still have a lot to look forward to. In any case, before we begin, I'd like to give you a little bit of my background and some brief insight into what inspired me to create this podcast. I was first introduced to The Stand in 1994 when the miniseries aired on ABC, and I was 13 at the time, um, which I guess probably gives away my age a little bit, so don't do the math, but I remember sitting down with my parents to watch it, and at that point, I had only read Pet Cemetery, and you know, I, I enjoyed the novel, but I had yet to become um, a, a bonafide King fan, and All I can really remember is that very first scene uh, where Campion sees his monitors and runs and then those first few notes of Don't Fear the Reaper begin to play. And I remember I was just I was hooked and watching the camera move from room to room, revealing the dead. And so many had, you know, been they fell over at their desks or slumped on the lunch table Um, the people who were trying to escape and were still propped up against the doors. Um, If there was an effective way to snag the interest of the casual viewer, I would say that Mick Garris, who directed The Stand, I mean, he nailed it with this opening sequence. And, you know, I guess you could say, you know, well, you watch the series, you saw everything that happened, why would you read the book? But us readers know that the book is always better (laughs) than the movie. And, I picked up my mom's copy of The Stand, uh, which I distinctly remember being the miniseries tie-in with Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald on the cover. And I spent the next couple of weeks reading this book, and it just quickly became my favorite novel. And this is the book that turned me into a bona fide constant reader. Um, It was such an epic adventure from the very beginnings of the super flu all the way to the showdown in Las Vegas where our heroes make their last stand. And King had such a way with words, you know, developing his characters, their backstories. Um, I had yet to read an author who just gave us so much description. Um, And, you know, the, the imagery, it was visceral and haunting. And, you know, we lost some characters along the way. And for me, it was like I was really losing friends and it just affected me in that way that that one novel in your life really stays with you. And I know that the novel can occasionally feel dated from time to time, given when the book was written um, and even later when King adjusted his timeline to the 90s. But the themes remained relevant, Uh, good and evil, darkness and redemption and, you know, above all, hope. And I feel hope is something that we need today, uh, probably more than ever. 
So I hope you stick out this journey with me. I'm going to try and read and review a chapter a week. So if you decide to read along, please send me your thoughts, your questions, comments. Um, You can do that on the podcast page or at my Twitter page, which is at The Circle Opens. And leave me a comment and we'll enjoy this discussion together. Two brief notes before we begin. The first is I will be reading from the complete and uncut edition, of course. And the second is this is your official spoiler warning. Obviously, I will be spoiling this book. So if you haven't read The Stand yet or you haven't at least read the prologue in chapter one, I'm going to ask you to push pause or turn this off and then come back uh, when you've finished. The official synopsis of The Stand um, is from StephenKing.com, and it reads, One man escapes from a biological weapon facility after an accident, carrying with him the deadly virus known as Captain Trips, a rapidly mutating flu that, in the ensuing weeks, wipes out most of the world's population. In the aftermath, survivors choose between following an elderly black woman to Boulder or the dark man Randall Flagg, who has set up his command post in Las Vegas. The two factions prepare for a confrontation between the forces of good and evil. I want to give you just a really brief history of The Stand before we dive into the prologue. Um, The Stand was first published in 1978, um, but King actually wrote a short story preceding The Stand called Night Surf. And Night Surf was published in 1969 by Ubris, which is a literary journal that's published by the University of Maine. And from there, uh, Night Surf was published in a 1974 issue of Cavalier and then, of course, included in King's 1978 collection of short stories, Night Shift. Uh, And Night Surf is the first to mention Captain Tripp's. in Night Surf, actually, Captain Trips is also known as a six, and that was believed to originated from Southeast Asia before wiping out most of humanity. And Night Surf follows a group of uh, former college students who've survived the plague and have taken refuge on a beach. Um, I guess if, if you've read Night Surf, you know, some people say that it's possible that, you know, the story takes place during the events of the stand or parallel to them. Um, but after reading Night Surf, it feels like that the plague kind of lasts longer in Night Surf than it does in The Stand. You know, people are still dying uh, months after the peak of the outbreak in Night Surf, whereas in The Stand, you know, the plague moves rapidly through everybody who's not actually immune to it. So um, I still recommend reading Night Surf, and I know that it was also turned into a short film, um, which I'm hoping to watch and review for this podcast as well. Uh, But, you know, King took the idea of Captain Trips from Night Surf and expanded it into what we know now as The Stand. And um, most King fans know this, but he had been wanting to write a fantasy epic that was similar to The Lord of the Rings, but set in America. And, he, you know, he's quoted as saying uh, he saw the 60-minute segment on chemical biological warfare, and he said, quote, I never forgot the gruesome footage of the test mice shuddering, convulsing, and dying all in 20 seconds or less that got me remembering a chemical spill in Utah that killed a bunch of sheep. These were canisters on their way to some burial ground, and they fell off the truck and ruptured. I remember a news reporter saying, quote, If the winds had been blowing the other way, there was Salt Lake City. 
This incident later served as the basis of a movie called Rage, starring George C. Scott, but before it was released, I was deep into the stand, finally writing my American fantasy epic set in a plague-decimated USA. Only instead of a hobbit, my hero was a Texan named Stu Redman, and instead of a dark lord, my villain was a ruthless drifter and supernatural madman named Randall Flagg. The land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, according to Tolkien, was played by Las Vegas. So, you know, along with um, chemical spills and uh, the Lord of the Rings, uh, King was also inspired by the political climate of the time, uh, Nixon's resignation in Vietnam. And he heard a quote on the radio from a Christian sermon that was being broadcast. And the quote was, once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. Uh, this quote made a strong impression on King. He wrote it down and typed it or pinned it a, above his typewriter. Um, so he was writing this fictionalized account of the Patty Hearst story, and he was struggling with this. But he looked up and he saw this quote, and that kind of triggered his inspiration and motivation to finally write The Stand. Uh, it took him two years, and he has claimed that he at one point he suffered from a severe case of writer's block. Um, he was finding that these characters were just falling into the same old patterns that got them there in the first place in this situation. And um, I'm not going to tell you what he had to do to get these creative juices flowing again, because that would spoil so much of this book too early. So we'll get to that later. Um, but when he got the book finished, it was about 1,200 pages. And his publisher couldn't print a novel that long, like literally their printing presses couldn't handle the thickness of this book. So King had to make uh, some serious cuts and he slashed about 400 pages. The first hardcover to go to print was 823 pages long. And of course it made the bestseller list. So in 1990, along with updating the timeline and the pop culture references, uh, King restored the cut pages and he created the complete and uncut edition that you now find in stores today. In this edition, King writes a two-part preface, and I'm not going to read these, um, but in part one, he's speaking directly to the potential buyer, just to make sure that they know that this is not a new novel, uh, but simply an expansion on the stand. And in part two, he says is to be read after purchase. And, you know, he won't explain to us, he's not going to explain to us how he came to write the stand. But he does tell us uh, why he had to make so many cuts to the original version and, and what his feelings were as he resurrected his original vision. And King says, here is the stand constant reader as his author originally intended for it to roll out of the showroom, all its chrome now intact for better or for worse. And the final reason for presenting this version is the simplest. Although it has never been my favorite novel, it is the one people who like my books seem to like the most. Uh, King goes on to discuss the inevitability of a movie and, you know, whom at the time he would have cast in the roles. We'll talk about that later. And when we get to uh, discussing the adaptations or upcoming adaptations. Um, but for now, we're going to turn the page and begin a journey that will take us to the end of civilization as we know it, where the circle opens. So in our prologue, we are introduced to Sally who is being unceremoniously woken up in the wee hours of the morning by her husband, Charlie. Charlie Campion is a security guard at a government base in California. 
And though it's never specifically revealed, we do know much later um, and from the official synopsis that this is a biological weapons facility. Charlie has been working the third shift lately, so Sally hasn't been expecting him home until morning. Um, You know, she's watching the Today Show and scrambling his eggs for breakfast. Um, So needless to say, Sally is sleepy and confused at Charlie's frantic state. He wants her awake, and when she wonders if there's a fire in the house, Charlie tells her it's much worse and to get their daughter, baby LaVon, up and dressed. Uh, Sally suddenly fears he's going AWOL. And she cries that soldiers will come after them. But Charlie assures her that no one will be coming after them tonight. This is when she begins to realize, um, and we as a reader begin to realize, that something is really wrong. Um, By now, Charlie's coughing, but seems confident of their plan to drive east since the wind is blowing west. It begins to dawn on Sally that there might have been an accident, quote, out there. And out there is the lab where Charlie was stationed. Charlie explains that he was playing solitaire when he looked up to see the green light had turned red. And when he checked the monitors, he saw that everyone in the facility was D-E-A-D. Those who weren't were probably dead now. Uh, There's a security system in place that if things go wrong, the entire base would be on lockdown, including the tower where Charlie was stationed. He managed to jump out of the tower before the door shut and locked him in like a bug in a bottle. Uh, the two pack up their things and they get into their Chevy with their, their daughter. And Charlie's determined to get out of the base, even if it means crashing through the gates. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, there is no need for that. The gates are open. The guards at this side of the base are completely unaware of the horrors that are unraveling around them. Charlie, Sally, and baby LaVon have gotten away, and while Charlie believes they're heading in the right direction, away from whatever it was that killed everyone in the facility, he's already coughing pretty steadily by the time they reach Nevada. I really think this is um, an extremely effective way to open the story. Uh, You know, King induces this confusing sort of panic that's stemming from Charlie's franticness. And I think that it was the perfect choice to show us this from Sally's point of view, as she's trying to get answers from her husband, you know, as to what's happening and what might've gone wrong. You know, her mind goes immediately to a fire, but she doesn't smell smoke. Uh, And then she sees, you know, Charlie's behavior and starts to think he's lost his mind and he's trying to run away. Um, essentially Sally is us, the reader, you know, we're in the dark trying to get answers as well while Charlie's rushing around the house, grabbing money and packing clothes. Um, and in a sense, it seems as though Charlie doesn't quite know what's really going on either, only that it's bad, bad enough, you know, that they need to flee the entire base. Um, but Charlie's coughing and his choices are being dependent on which way the wind is blowing. It gives us a little insight into the nature of the situation. Uh, something has taken hold of him that is quite possibly contagious. Uh, I'm going to tell you my favorite quote um, from this prologue. And I'll probably tell you my favorite quote from every chapter because I have some. Um, but my favorite quote from the prologue is, I looked up and saw that the clock had gone red. It's just a simple observation, but it's carrying the weight of such dread. Um, his instinct was to get out of that tower and flee rather than follow protocol. You know, suppose he hadn't been working the third shift that night. Uh, suppose somebody else had been in that tower and had not gotten out before the lockdown. You know, suppose, suppose, suppose. And obviously we, we wouldn't have a story if maybe things had, had gone differently. Or you know what? Maybe this would have all 
happen the way it happens regardless of Charlie. But Charlie, Sally, and baby LaVon are the ones who get us started. And that brings us to book one, which is Captain Trips. And those dates are June 16th, 1990 to July 4th. So uh, this takes place a little under a month, uh, the events of the next few chapters. Um, And I love that at the beginning of these books, uh, King gives us some quotes um, for, you know, the circle opens. We actually get to see what, uh, how King came to name the stand. And it's from a Bruce Springsteen song, uh, Jungle Land. Uh, so he he put a few uh, lines of that song at the beginning of the novel, um, along with, of course, Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Raper, and Country Joe and the Fish, What's That Spell? But for Captain Trips, we get, I called the doctor on the telephone, said, Doctor, doctor, please, I got this feeling rocking and reeling. Tell me, what can it be? Is it some new disease by the Silvers? And then, of course, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? He's a Righteous Man. Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? by Larry Underwood, who we will get to know very soon. So as the Campion family is heading east, King takes us from California to Arnett, Texas. This is a small town that's fallen on hard times. You know, in the 80s, the town thrived with a paper factory and a plant that made electronic calculators. But the paper factory has since shut down. The calculator plant is ailing thanks to the fact that companies are realizing it's much cheaper to make certain goods in Taiwan. And good jobs are lean and unemployment rate is high. It's in Arnett that we meet a handful of Texans all hanging around Hapscom's Texaco, owned by Bill Hapscom, who they call Hap. He is a man with overdue bills and a ninth grade education, and he seems to think this financial crisis can be solved by simply printing new money. Um, You know, with Bill is Tommy Wanamaker and Norman Brewitt. They're both unemployed. Henry Carmichael, who gets about 30 hours a week at the, you know, the uh, the electronic calculator plant and Vic Palfrey who is retired and he seems to be the only one uh, brave enough to call out Hap on his more ridiculous statements. With these men we also meet Stu Redman. Stu is described as one of the quietest men in Arnett. He's in his 30s. He works at the plant with Henry and he doesn't make a lot of money. Um, We learn that Stu grew up poor when his dad, who was a dentist, passed away. Stu was seven. And his mom had to get a job at a truck stop to support her and her three kids, Stu, Bryce, and Dev. Wanting and needing to help his mom, Stu began to work at the age of nine, lying about his age to get hired unloading trucks and then at a nearby stockyard. He lost his brother, Dev, at a young age from pneumonia, and we get a lot of insight uh, just into how bad off he and his family were when this happens. You know, Stu laments that he loved Dev the most, but that also meant he was the most guilt-ridden because he was also relieved that there was one less mouth to feed. Like, you know, ouch. (laughs) Um, There's a glimmer of hope for a brighter future for Stu. Uh, He begins to play football in high school. And his mom knows that, you know, Stu playing sports will take him away from working, which means less money. But she encourages this because if Stu can get a scholarship and get out of Arnett, she wants that to happen. You know, she loves her son. She wants him to have a future. And Arnett is just a dead town. Um, Unfortunately, you know, his mom gets cancer 
And Stu turns down this scholarship that's offered to him to stay in Arnett and help his mom. And a twist of fate that felt a little reminiscent to me of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, His brother Bryce is the one who manages to make something of himself. You know, Stu sacrificed so Bryce could thrive. Uh, Bryce moves to Minnesota. He gets a job as an IBM analyst. And the chapter touches very briefly upon Stu's short-lived marriage. Um, But we don't, you know, the thing that kind of disappointed me, we don't even get a name. Um, of the woman who brought such joy to Stu. Uh, it, it only lasted 18 months because like Stu's mom, his wife died of cancer. Um, and at the funeral is where Stu sees Bryce, perhaps for the last time. Stu had sacrificed his future so Bryce could have one of his own. And Bryce stays away from Arnett. He stays away from Stu, uh, perhaps out of guilt or shame that he's living a rather successful life while Big Brother Stu became just another good old boy in a dying Texas town. Given the amount of time that King spends on Stu here, you know, surrounded by Hap and the others, we can tell Stu is going to be the one to watch. He's silent as the others argue over money. He's watchful of the night outside, and he's the only one who sees the Chevy coming down the street, its headlights off, weaving back and forth, going a steady 15 miles an hour. Stu is the one who calmly turns off the gas pumps when it's uh, clear that the others are too involved in their argument to do it before the Chevy hits. It takes out three of Hap's pumps, and once they're sure the car isn't going to go up in flames, the group ventures outside to see what's going on. Opening the driver's side door falls out, you guessed it, Charlie Campion. Uh, Norm is instantly sick from the smell that radiates from the Chevy. A sick stench compounded of blood, fecal matter, vomit, and human decay. It seems that Charlie was not quick enough to escape whatever it was that had killed the others back on that California California Army base. Um, Charlie's still alive, and they carry him into the station in order to call an ambulance. Stu and Vic stay outside, where they observe that Sally and baby LaVon are long gone, both swollen and bruised, with thick, crusted mucus clotting their noses and flies buzzing around their bodies. It makes you wonder how long they've been dead while Charlie's continued to drive east, either probably completely unaware that uh, his daughter and wife are no longer with him. Uh, Stu finds it, he says he finds it to be a pitiful sight. Uh, And this is where we see or are revealed that, you know, he was in the war, um, but he had never seen anything um, so as pitiful as this poor woman and her child. Uh, You know, the ambulance is on their way. Six men hover around Charlie. He's sick and barely conscious, but he's also delirious. And he asks about Sally and baby LaVon and explains that uh, the two had gotten sick around Salt Lake City, uh, which was kind of a nice throwback to King's uh, inspiration about the sheep. Uh, (laughs) He realizes that uh, Charlie realizes that they hadn't moved quick enough after all. Uh, The men speculate that maybe the family had suffered from a poisoned burger at a roadside stand. Uh, That had to have been a really nasty burger. (laughs) Um, Vic thinks maybe it was cholera. In any case, the ambulance arrives to take Campion to the hospital. Hap Hap opts to ride in the ambulance and instructs Stu to call the state police regarding the bodies in the Chevy. Inside the ambulance, Charlie draws his last breath about 20 miles from the hospital. Hap pulls out the man's wallet, finds $17 in cash, the the man's California license, his army card, 
and pictures of Sally and baby Levon that Hap finds too difficult to look at. And chapter one ends with with this and uh, Charlie's death and the sentence. He stuffed the wallet back into the dead man's pocket and told Carlos to turn off the siren. It was 10 after 9. So we're getting some backstory on Stu Redman and the tiny town of Ardette, Texas. And King paints a vivid picture of the small town gas station with these men or friends hanging around drinking and arguing politics, though it's pretty clear that none of them really have much of an education. Arnett is just another town down on its luck, uh, never giving an inch and holding on to its residents, more or less to their detriment. Uh, Some obviously find a way out, like Stu's brother Bryce, but more often than not, they're stuck, whether due to financial hardship, marriage, or personal sacrifice. And Stu's clearly had a rough life. Even the brief spells of happiness are far and few in between. Uh, We don't even get to know who his wife was. But we learn that Vic Palfrey once called Stu old-time tough, and that's something Stu considers to be the ultimate compliment. I like that we get a lot of insight into Stu, even though he doesn't say much of anything, um, but he really doesn't need to. It's it's probably a testament to King's writing that you have such a clear vision of who this person is without much dialogue from him at all. And I also really like that we see um, these moments with the other men. Um, It's not just, you know, Stu. It's, you know, Hap is there trying to comfort Charlie, uh, trying to reassure him that Sally and baby LaVon are okay, even though they've been dead for a while. Uh, He shows Charlie compassion, uh, a total stranger, and he volunteers to ride in the ambulance with Charlie to the hospital. It's very clear that something like this doesn't happen often in Arnett. The, uh, the three EMTs who arrive on the scene, they clearly have no idea what to do with Sally and baby Levon. And, you know, they look to Hap for assistance, like, tell us what to do. We've, we've never taken, we've never had to deal with this before. And Stu is, he, he seems to be the youngest of the bunch, um, but he's also maybe the wisest, even if he doesn't talk much. While Hap and Vic argue over solving financial troubles by printing money, you know, Stu's quiet. Uh, he, he doesn't give them his opinion. He just understands that they're all in trouble. No matter how long you argue about it, it doesn't change the fact that they're all in trouble. And if it weren't for his observation and quick thinking, when he spots the Chevy coming, you know, it's possible the entire gas station would have gone up in flames. Um, you know, whereas back in California, all we heard from Charlie was that everyone on his monitors was dead. But here... In this chapter, King describes in detail what happened to baby Levon and Sally. Uh, we see Norm get sick from the smell, and Hap and Tommy are pale and nauseous as they carry Charlie into the station. Uh, Hank gets sick shortly after looking into the car, uh, while Vic and Stu can do nothing but stare. And, you know, King writes, On the passenger side was a young woman, her shift dress hiked up on her thighs, Leaning against her was a boy or girl about three years old. They were both dead. Their necks had swelled up like inner tubes, and the flesh there was a purple-black color like a bruise. The flesh was puffed up under their eyes, too. They looked, Vic later said, like those baseball players who put lamp black under their eyes to cut the glare. Their eyes bulged sightlessly. The woman was holding the child's hand. Thick mucus had run from their noses and was now clotted there. Flies buzzed around them, lighting in the mucus, crawling in and out of their open mouths. Stu had been in the war, but he had never seen anything so terribly pitiful as this. 
His eyes were constantly drawn back to those linked hands. It's such a gruesome way to die. Um, and King paints a haunting picture. And, you know, you almost feel sick to your stomach just reading it. And yet at the same time, there's something so heartbreaking about it, too. Uh, the way Stu's eyes are drawn to Sally's hand clutching baby Lavon's, And it's terrifying to think of what their last moments might have been like. You know, unable to stop it, not understanding it. Charlie being so sick and delirious himself that he doesn't even realize that his wife and daughter have passed. And, you know, clearly they've been dead for some time. Uh, whatever it is that was unleashed in California has now infected Charlie and his family. And it's not your ordinary flu. It's much, much worse. At this point, we're not sure what's going to happen in our net taxes, but it carries an ominous weight. It's obvious at this point that whatever killed the lab workers back in California also killed Sally, baby Levon, and Charlie. Whereas the biological weapon facility was ground zero, who knows how many people Charlie and his family came into contact with on their journey east. And now they've landed in this small town in our net. And there's a there's this, you know, very heavy feeling that everything is about to spiral out of control. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode one of The Circle Opens. If you've stuck with me this long, thank you. And I hope that you will be back next week when I review chapter two and we get our introduction into Francis Goldsmith. A side note. Uh, this is my first attempt at a podcast, and I, you know, I'm I'm learning as I go, and I'm hoping to improve uh, with each episode. And I would love any advice, constructive criticism, or feedback, um, or if you just want to talk to me about, you know, these first two, the the prologue and chapter one, and uh, give me some feedback, and I'd be happy to read it on air next week. Um, even if you just want to talk about the stand in general. Uh, feel free to do that at my Twitter feed at The Circle Opens, or you can leave a comment on my blog, thecircleopens.com. And until then, constant readers, M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week.